John. Good evening. My name is Paul. I'm a shy, sensitive alcoholic. <laughs> Through the grace of God in the AA program, I haven't had a drink or a pill or an impure thought since August 15, 1947. <laughs> Appreciate the chance to be here. Of course, at my age, I'm glad to be anywhere. I was 76 last May, which is a lot older than I had planned to be. Getting to be too old to take yes for an answer. <laughs> Work out in the gym three times a week. I'm a lean, mean, senile machine. <laughs> Pleasure to see Cease, whom I haven't seen for many years. I used to run into Cease quite often, and uh, Cease has been a very good friend of mine for many years. And He's still as fine a speaker as he always was. Those of you who were here this morning heard him talk about the little boy who was having a romance with himself. <clears throat> and his mother pointed out that if he keep, kept this up, he would go blind. <laughs> and he asked if he could keep it up till he wore glasses. And Cease, you'll, find, you'll find Cease's story in the big book in a section titled, They Stopped in Time. <laughs> I have an additional announcement on the bike blessing. For the Jewish AAs, a rabbi will be there to cut two inches off the tailpipe. <laughs> you know, for years, Cease and I were worried about dying young, and now it's too late. I stayed in one of those motels a while back that had a mirror on the ceiling, and I woke up in the morning and looked up. I thought I was being attacked by a giant prune. <laughs> when Cease was drinking, he was out one night, and he was sitting at a bar, and a beautiful blonde was next to him, and she said, would you like to buy me a drink? And Cease said, well, I'm no John D. Rockefeller, but I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> a little while later, she said, would you like to dance with me? And Cease said, well, I'm no Fred Astaire, but I'll dance with you. A little more time passed, and she said, would you like to go home with me? And she said, well, I'm no Don Juan, but I'll go home with you. Several hours later, he was getting ready to leave. She said, how about some money? She said, well, I ain't no gigolo, but I'll take it. <laughs> I've done a lot of things for a living. Since I sobered up, I've spent several years after I quit drinking as a professional wrestler. The wrestlers were smaller at that time and I was bigger, but I had a, the privilege of being a guest in Bill Wilson's home on several occasions. I was there in the spring of 1951 and Lois Wilson was a wrestling fan. I used to work on cards out of the Rainbow Arena in Chicago that were televised all over the Middle West and on the East Coast, and Lois used to watch them. The promoter was a guy named Ray Fabiani, who I think when he died they had to screw him into the ground, he was so crooked. But... <laughs> they said Ray, they said that Ray had been a violinist with the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra. I don't know if that's true or not. I know that a few years later he had a little trouble with the IRS for fiddling with his income tax. But Lois kept asking me if wrestling was fixed. And I kept trying to find a way to answer her question without actually lying to her. 
which turned out to be very difficult. But we're certainly fortunate that Bill Wilson met Ebby Thatcher, and Ebby Thatcher found Dr. Bob, and you and I are sober today as a result of that. AA works, it does not work on my terms. It works on the terms of the AA program, the 12 steps. I go to a working step group. I go to two meetings a week. Cease told me I had to. I go to a Wednesday night working step group and a Saturday morning working step group. And again, it's not a reading group, a philosophizing group, a theorizing group, a therapy group. We don't talk about our feelings. We talk about where we are in working each step. We start at 1, and 12 weeks later we're up at 12, and then we go back to 1. The group operates very simply, and the whole emphasis is on experiencing the 12 steps by working and reworking the 12 steps. None of this happens by accident. I spent, after my wrestling career, which never went anywhere, compl collapsed completely, I worked on overseas construction in the 1950s in Greenland, Iceland, and Alaska. They were building an Air Force base in Thule, Greenland, which is 850 miles south of the North Pole. I went up as a laborer on a rigging crew. When I was drinking, a lot of people said I was a smart young man, and if I quit drinking, I would go far. And now I find myself near the North Pole, which was a lot farther than I had planned to go. <laughs> but for a lot of those years, my AA came out of the big book. I've read the big book many, many times. 12 and 12 came out in 53, and I used to read that. I read a chapter a day. And I ended up writing for a living for a series of things that happened. I'm not sure why. I, AA gave me the courage to fail. I wanted to be a writer, but I always figured I might be lousy, and I didn't want to find out if that was true or not. So I would rather spend the rest of my life not doing it, saying, well, I'd have been a great writer if I'd have really done it. And I ended up writing for a living, which I've done for, well, since 1964. I started freelancing when I was 44 years old, which is kind of over the hill, but it's worked out very well. I've failed many times, and I have succeeded many times, and I've written a lot of articles and books and things like that. It's enabled me to travel all over the world. I was we were talking with Cease yesterday or this morning. You know, we are ethically challenged president is quite famous around the world. <clears throat> There's a, this is a true story. There's a wax museum in Sydney, Australia, and they have wax uh, statues of all the famous people. And people were coming by and they were zipping down Clinton's trousers. They finally had to sew the zipper in place. <clears throat> but I've been in 16 countries in the last six years. The interesting thing is that I'm very grateful when I come home that I was born in the United States. And I'm not being a jingoist or a chauvinist on that. We are so lucky here, we have no idea how fortunate we are. Some years ago, I was in the Galapagos Islands off the coast of Ecuador. That's where Darwin got the idea for the theory of evolution from the finches and the giant tortoises. And I learned that during mating season, the male tortoises get so excited, they try to mate with large rocks. <laughs> it's pretty much like your average AA picnic. But the more, the more I have worked the 12 steps, the more I have worked and reworked the steps, not just go to meetings and don't drink, but the more I have worked and reworked the 12 steps, the larger my life has become. 
When I came to AA, I couldn't go anywhere. It was all tied into my own insanity and my own ego and my own selfishness. I've traveled to Latin America many times. I was just in Mexico. Got, Judy and I got back Wednesday night. But Cortez came to what used to be the Aztec headquarters, which is now the same area as Mexico City. He arrived there in 1519. And he had about 400 soldiers, and they were seeking gold. <clears throat> and they were so greedy that this Aztec, which had uh, 300,000 people, the Aztec capital, but it was on a lake, and it was connected with islands, with causeways, and uh, canals, and bridges. And they lost, the Spaniards lost a battle, and they were loaded with gold, and many of them drowned because the gold was so heavy they would not give it up and save their lives. And that's really the way I have acted with many of my character defects. I hang on to them even though they destroy my life and make it much less than it might be. The only things I know about living I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've learned them from you. And I continue to go to meetings. It's possible I might stay sober without meetings. Without AA, I don't want to try that for at least two reasons. One, I have tremendous obligation to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's you people, because when I, I came to AA, I believed nothing. And I gradually came to believe in God and you and the AA steps and the program, and I couldn't separate one from the other. Because what I know about living and what I know about God, I've learned from each of you, and I continue to learn that. I have a lot of sobriety. <clears throat> but that's no good unless I continue to do the work in the program that will give it life. I can't get by on the exercise I did 10 years ago or the food I ate five years ago or the air I breathed six months ago. And the same thing is true of the AA program. Going to meetings and not drinking do not treat my alcoholism. Working the 12 steps treats my alcoholism. If all I do is go to meetings and not drink, eventually I suffer from untreated alcoholism, which comes out as depression, anxiety, fear, hostility, apathy, boredom, and sometimes suicide. I've seen a lot of people kill themselves in Alcoholics Anonymous through the years. My answer is not to go find a therapist. My answer is to use the answers which were here all the time in the big book. It's been said many times, if you want to hide something from an AA member, the best place to put it is in the big book. I suspect that's true. The program has done everything but grow hair. <clears throat> I did hear about one guy who got a hair grow and he used it for six months. He only grew one hair, but it weighed eight pounds. <clears throat> I heard a beautiful Al-Anon story a while back. Lady was Al-Anon lady was married to this alcoholic for 30 years. And she died, he died rather, she had him cremated and she spread the ashes on the kitchen table, mixed him up with marijuana, rolled him up in a cigarette and smoked him. She said that's the first time in 30 years he made her feel good. <clears throat> but the step group to which I belong, and I go to a meeting on Wednesday night, I go to a meeting on Saturday morning, and it is a working step group. We continue to work the steps. I came into AA, as I mentioned, in 1947. By the first year and a half, I had done a fourth and fifth step, and I blundered along and worked some other steps. And I had heard 
in my area there in Oak Park, which is just west of Chicago, that you only work the first nine steps once. And then you do 10, 11, and 12. Well, I didn't know any better. And in 1963, so over 16 years, I heard that there's benefit in redoing all of these steps. So I, I've always figured you cannot understand something unless you try it. And so I began doing new fourth steps and fifth steps. And I found that this was very, very different, far more thorough than doing that tenth step. And I began to work with other people on that basis, and I found that people who could not stay sober began to stay sober when they did this. I ran into a guy who was, I ended up doing a lot of health and science articles, and I ran into a man who was a research professor of psychology at the University of Illinois in 63, Dr. Hobart Maurer. Maurer was not an alcoholic, but he knew a lot about the 12 steps. And he's the person I heard say that there is benefit in letting more and more people know all the truth about you. If everybody knows the truth, you don't have to hide anything. You've heard the saying that we're as sick as our secrets. And if I have secrets that I have to hide, then these very possibly will contribute to depression, to anxiety, to fear, all of these other symptoms of untreated alcoholism. So I began to work and rework all of the steps, and I found tremendous benefit here. <clears throat> Mahler also was a guy that uh, said that there is benefit in swapping fifth steps. Now, this is a man who had impeccable professional credentials. <coughs> but he said one of the problems with therapy is that you should not get paid for helping people with their problems. The long form of Tradition 8 says Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional. We define professionalism as the occupation of counseling alcoholics for fees or higher. Now, probably that is the most thoroughly and completely ignored tradition in all of the 12. <clears throat> so I began swapping fifth steps with people. People I sponsored began to do that. <clears throat> it's what I get for quitting smoking. I guess you heard about the new Prozac with Viagra. <clears throat> if it doesn't work, you don't worry about it. <clears throat> it says in chapter 6 that you can take a fifth step with a friend or somebody you trust or a priest or a clergyman or a therapist. I swapped a fifth step a couple of months ago with a Monsignor from Iowa who's over 15 years. 68 years old, suffering acutely from depression, anxiety, general despair, and he'd gone to a psychiatrist who wanted to give him pills. A friend of mine from Iowa sent him over and he spent the weekend with us, <clears throat> and on that weekend he swapped a number of fifth steps with people in our group. And he got back, went back with some amends that he found, but the result of doing this concentrated work with the steps was the guy in a weekend completely lost his depression, total. And we have seen that kind of thing happen over and over and over. One of the keys to it is that somebody else is taking his fifth step at the same time with a written inventory, and nobody is making money out of it. Because swapping fifth steps through the years, I have found that I learned a great deal from listening to other people's fifth steps. 
Vincent Dole was a non-alcoholic trustee who retired a number of years ago. I'm sure that Cease knew him. And Dole, when he, who was an MD, said, my concern for the future of Alcoholics Anonymous is that its principle of personal service may be eroded by money and professionalism. And that was a very, very sound fear, because I think that's happened to an unfortunately large degree in Alcoholics Anonymous. AA didn't start as one of many ways to help alcoholics. It started because there was no other way for alcoholics to stay sober and get sane. And in my experience, there still is no other way. This is the way that works, and it's worked for many, many years for several million people at least. One of the things that I turned up this last year in my fifth steps was something that I suppose had I been smarter, I would have noticed. But I was promising people that I would do things, and then I wasn't doing them. And one of the things I need to do is to do what I say because what I was doing was lying to these people. I was in Portugal last April, and there's a lion there. I do a lot of stories for Lions Clubs International. And I wrote the book that's the history of the lion some years ago, and I promised to send this man a copy of the book, and I never did. And finally, I sent him a copy, but I had about six other things that I had promised to do, and I hadn't done, and that's called lying. So I have to continue to work the steps so I will continue to be reminded of where I'm falling short. <clears throat> My idea of humility has always been the art of looking ashamed while you say beautiful things about yourself. <clears throat> but I think that we do get some humility by this constant work with all of the steps and particularly four through nine. I have found many, many, many amends through doing fourth and fifth steps that would never have occurred to me other otherwise. I didn't start out to be an alcoholic. I started out to be a clean-living American youth. I started out growing up in Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. I've always said I come from two big handicaps. One is too much secular education, and the other is too much religious education. <clears throat> I come from a long line of Lutheran ministers. In spite of that fact, I believe in God today. <clears throat> My ancestry is German, and the problem with that is Every time you have two beers, you want to cross somebody's border. <clears throat> My father was a Lutheran minister who was in Who's Who. He was a doctor of divinity. My, one of my grandfathers was in Who's Who as a doctor of divinity. I'm the only professional wrestler our family ever produced. <clears throat> but my father was a drunk. I have a younger brother and an older sister. And my father used to punch my mother around, and she finally feared for her life. And she decided she wanted either a divorce or a separation. And this was 1934, and that didn't happen very often. And he didn't want that to happen because he was a successful fundraiser, mostly with Lutheran churches and schools and things like that. So she wrote him a letter and took the three kids and went to a hotel for a week. And he pretended he'd never gotten the letter, and he had headed down south where he had a sister. The little town right near the uh, Florida border was so dull that if you took LSD, you'd have visions of Lawrence Welk. <clears throat> but I was entered in school there when I was 12. It was a totally different environment. And I had been a good student in Oak Park, and I was a lousy student down there. And I didn't really know what was going on. I was in this universe that I couldn't understand. 
And I had a tremendous, written retrospect, I can see I had a tremendous amount of anger, a lot of self-pity and resentment, and just general confusion. And I went from being a very good student to being a very bad student and a pretty fair athlete. I don't know when I became an alcoholic. I know that when I was eight or nine, if there was a little beer or wine around the house, I'd stamp it up. Nobody was looking. When I was 12, I used to pick the lock on my aunt's liquor closet there in that little town down in South Georgia, take a drink or two, and then add some water so she wouldn't know it was gone. And when I was 14, I got drunk for the first time. Something happened, as it does with all of us. Something registered, and I knew that this was the answer to any problem I would ever have. And it was for quite a while. I finished high school, went to college, and left halfway through the second year before I would have been thrown out. When I was 19, I came back to a park where my mother and brother and sister were, started college there, continued to drink. I was boxing for a club on the west side of Chicago. <clears throat> World War II had come along, and I decided to be a pilot in the Navy. I always wanted to be this glamorous character. You can see how thoroughly that ran out. <clears throat> but I went in the service, and... As a cadet, I could only get drunk on weekends. When I got commissioned, I could get drunk every night, which is what I did. I used to get drunk about nine nights in a row. And then on the tenth night, I'd go to bed about six o'clock and get up at six the next morning, and I'd be good for another week and a half. But I had started to black out, and strange things were happening. It was 23 in the summer of 1945. I went into a Navy hospital with pneumonia, which went into DTs. I was in there for a month. I got out. In fact, I got drunk nine out of the last ten nights in the hospital. Had a lot of good drinking friends. We were over in a station at the air station at uh, Norfolk, Virginia. A friend of mine and I had been there for a while, and he got me a blind date, and in her honor, I got blind. <laughs> and on the way home, I was having a lot of trouble with my stomach. We had to sh stop the car so I could get out and throw up, and then walking to the door, I had to go behind a bush and throw up. Then I was very hurt because she wouldn't kiss me goodnight. <clears throat> alcohol still worked. I never want to underestimate what alcohol did for me because it enabled me to, to survive until I could find you people who would show me how to live. The war had ended. I had enough points to get out. I got separated back at Great Lakes on December 8, 1945. I traveled for three days and three nights and got home to Oak Park where I'd been living. <clears throat> and I decided to get drunk over Christmas that year and go to Cincinnati. I ended up drunk in Milwaukee for three days, sobered up, drank myself sober on uh, two days after New Year's. I ended up with what had to be the worst-looking woman in the Middle West. She frightened me into six weeks of sobriety. <clears throat> she looked like a million dollars, and the only reason I say that is because I've never seen a million dollars, and she looked like something I never saw before. <clears throat> and I looked for various kinds of work. Not many people wanted to hire me. And I blundered along for the next couple of years. Alcoholism, alcohol had stopped working. And all I knew was that as bad as it was when I drank, when I would be sober for a while, it was even worse. 
I was starting to black out. I'm always grateful looking back that I never killed anybody or injured anybody with my automobile. That could have happened so easily. I was always losing my car. There's nothing more beautiful than an alcoholic who has been reunited with his lost automobile. <laughs> I'd walk around until I finally found it and then I'd say, my car. Shed a tear or two and then I'd get in and run into something. But when I worked, if I took more than half an hour for lunch, they had to retrain me. But I kept, I kept lying. I've had tremendous problems in my life, self-created through dishonesty. Lying, cheating, and stealing, drunk or sober, have always caused me a great deal of trouble. Rigorous honesty is what the program says we need, and that's certainly what I need, which I strive for and fall very short most of the time. But I began to make experiments. I knew what alcoholism was or booze pro problems were from my father. <clears throat> I've been in three bad automobile wrecks. I've been in two plane crashes. One of them when I was flying. As I've often said, I destroyed two aircraft in World War II, both of which belonged to the United States Navy. <laughs> a friend of mine pointed out that if I'd gotten three more, I would have been a Japanese ace. <clears throat> so I began to make the experiments on quitting drinking, cutting down on your drinking, on reading these books that would straighten out your life. And I read a lot of books, and they didn't straighten out my life. January of 1947, I went on the wagon. I stayed sober for three months, knowing I was an alcoholic, knowing I could not take one drink. And then I got drunk. I went to a party, and somebody gave me a shot, and I thought, I'll jump back on the wagon tomorrow. And the wagon had left. And I chased it around Chicago for the next few months. And finally, in August of 1947, I got a wonderful gift. I was no longer able to lie. I was no longer able to lie about my drinking, about the state of my life. I was no longer able to lie about the idiot that I was. If you asked me my opinion on anything, I would give it to you at great length, whether I knew anything about it or not. And usually I did not. For a week, I couldn't lie. I've been, I was in trouble. I've been drunker. I've been sicker. I couldn't lie. And a week later, after that drunk, I called AA. I haven't had a drink since. It was August 1947. The guy took me to a meeting on Sunday morning, and I went to meetings. I went to a lot of meetings. Nobody showed me how to work the steps. Nobody showed me what to do. And I couldn't figure it out myself. I blundered into it, and I got into more and more trouble. I believed initially that if I didn't drink, everything was going to be fine. And for five months, it was fine, and then it got worse and worse, and I didn't know what to do. And I went to a meeting one night, and they talked about the fourth step. So I took one. Now, that was after a year of sobriety. I got into a huge amount of trouble for some very dishonest business activities. I've always had a huge amount of greed with just a small amount of talent for satisfying the greed. <clears throat> and I cheated some people and looked like I might be make the AA prison group from the outside. <laughs> but I talked to some friends in AA, and I said, maybe I missed something in the program. And they said, son, you missed the whole program. I said, you kept such an open mind that the whole program just blew right through. <clears throat> and I did a fourth step, felt better for a while, and then I really felt bad. And I went to a meeting one night, and I was afraid I would drink, and it was on step five. And I made my usual 
beautiful comment on step five, never having taken one. And I went home and I thought, well, if step five is as good as I say it is, maybe I should try it myself. <laughs> so the next day I called a member of the group who was sober six weeks longer than I was. I went over and I took a fifth step with him. He never did take a fifth step. And he got drunk after 10 years of sobriety, and I'm sure there is a direct connection between the two. So I began to work the steps and gradually understood that I was supposed to do these things, not just talk about them, because the program was about change. And I cannot change with my willpower. I can work the steps, and they will change me. I will experience God. I didn't know I was looking for God when I came here. I was a fallen-away atheist. <clears throat> the way I'd been taught, they said, if you don't believe this way, you're going to be part of an eternal marshmallow roast, and you'll be one of the marshmallows. And when I would ask why, they would say, that's because God loves you. And I thought, maybe I need less cosmic affection. But being an atheist didn't work that well either. I, was, I had a spell when I was in the Navy as an atheist. And one night I cracked up an airplane, and I should have been killed. It was 110% pilot error. But I dropped it in the drink, and it turned over slowly. I got out, and I pulled the toggles on the May West, and it didn't inflate. So I hung on to the side of the plane until they came out in the boat and got me. But you never saw such a fast conversion in your whole life. <laughs> I was screaming prayers to the heavens. It was a Zen master who came to New York a couple of months ago. And he went to a hot dog vendor on the street and said, I want a hot dog. And the vendor said, how do you want it? He said, make me one with everything. So he got his hot dog and the Zen master gave the vendor a $20 bill. And the vendor put it in his pocket. And the Zen master said, what about change? The vendor said, change must come from within. <laughs> I gradually figured that out in Alcoholics Anonymous, but change will only come if I do the work that the program says. As Cease pointed out this morning, the promises only come true after we work the first nine steps. So gradually I worked the steps. I came back to Oak Park area in 1959 and worked around there, and I've lived around there ever since in that area. I live in Riverside, which is a town near Oak Park, about 15 minutes south. The town is so small that uh, we have to paint a bright white line down the middle so we can tell which side to walk on. It's too small to have a village idiot. We all just take turns. <laughs> but I began to work the steps, and the more I worked the steps, the more I began to see that this is what I always wanted. In Freedom from Bondage, the last paragraph says, I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I need, I get. And invariably, when I get what I need, when I, it turns out to be what I wanted all the time. And that increasingly is my experience. The only reality is God. And as I said before, I didn't come here looking for God. I wanted to be able to stay sober and be the same person that I was, except perhaps a little suaver. That was too much to ask. But I have everything I need, and I'm reworking and working the steps for the rest of my life. And that's the basis on which I try to sponsor people. If somebody comes to me and he wants me to sponsor him, we start with step one. We talk about this. It's powerless over alcohol and an unmanageable life. And real manageability is simply having my life turned over to God. Step two, coming to believe in a power greater than myself who will restore me to sanity. 
I don't say this jokingly, I had no idea how crazy I was. I had no idea how long it would take to become something that resembles a sane human being. And I think that sanity equals honesty. If I lie about anything, I destroy the ability to understand the truth about everything. So when I lie, like, as I mentioned earlier, if I tell somebody I'm going to do something and I don't do it, I lie to that person. And what I better do is go ahead and do it. And another thing is stop making commitments unless I really intend to keep them. Step three, I hate to tell you how long I was sober before I knew about that prayer on page 63. I take step three at home every morning at the beginning of my meditation. And on step four, the, the step four that we do in the groups I belong to, and we do a lot of work with the steps. If somebody comes in there, we don't tell him how to run his life or his job or his family or anything else. If he's got problems, and we never hear from people unless they do have problems, as I was saying at dinner, the alcoholic disappears very quickly when he feels good. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. The only thing that travels faster is the alcoholic disappearing after he feels good. <laughs> but if somebody comes in and he's in trouble, and we, we get people with various and sometimes large amounts of sobriety, we get them right into the steps, which is what Ebby Thatcher did with Bill Wilson in November of 1934 when Bill sobered up for the last time. He did the first eight steps of the program in the first week. Bill did much the same thing with Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob was sober a few weeks, he got drunk. He came back, and the first thing he did in Akron was go around and make amends. You know, I hear groups where they say you can't do the, you had to do a step a year or something like that. I'd have been dead from self-inflicted wounds. <laughs> and we have gotten a lot of people who come to see us, as I say, from all over the U.S. and Canada, and they have for years. And what this does is it changes their lives. So that that's what the group does. The group tries to continue this kind of work so that the members will stay healthy and also that the people that we work with who come into that group will stay healthy. So for headings, I use the seven deadly sins, which are mentioned as a source of inventory in the 12 and 12. Pride, lust, anger, envy, greed, sloth, gluttony. I also use resentment dishonesty, selfishness, self-pity, and fear. And throughout, I try to find out where I am at fault. I've spent a lot of life, a lot of my life blaming other people. And I finally was told, in a way I remembered, that I was the one that caused all this. My problems, drunk or sober, were not because I was a sick person. I was a sick person because I lived badly, because I was dishonest, irresponsible, self-centered, greedy, and all these other things. And the way to get rid of these problems or to work the steps. As I mentioned, the Monsignor came in two months ago, and he's in great shape now, almost suicidal, but when he came, and he was sober 15 years. Now, he had spent a lot of time listening to Fifth Steps, but that certainly is not the same thing. Bill Wilson once told me that the people who had the toughest time getting the AA program were Army officers and Catholic priests, because they're so used to telling people what to do, they're not too good at listening. So when somebody comes to me to take a fifth step, I take a fifth step with him. I do probably four of these a year. And what I found from the swapping is that the more open I am with people, the freer I am. 
I have more energy, I can work better, I can think better, I can live better. My life, as I say, has gotten bigger and bigger through the years. And it continues to get bigger at an age when I'm, supposed I'm lucky to remember where I am. And the one benefit of Alzheimer's is that you get to hide your own Easter eggs. <laughs> So step six, step six, I try to become willing. I become willing through working the steps that precede step six. I become willing also through pain. When I have done something that's so stupid that it makes me feel so bad that I say maybe I better do something else. Step seven, I ask daily at the beginning of my meditation to have my defects removed, listing them, and then I go on with the meditation. Step eight, I've done a number of written step eights, and uh, the first one I did was very short, and they have grown as I've gone along. I've had a lot of problems with people that I've harmed while I've been sober. I spent a, quite a while in my leadership phase in AA, and I ran into a lot of trouble with people who didn't recognize God's will when I explained it to them, <laughs> and then I had to go back and make amends to them. Some of them were not as polite in accepting them as they might have been. So I have, the, the list on step eight grows from working the other steps. When I was sober a long time, it's 1968, I was sober 21 years. And in recent time before that, I had tried to get together with my father, who I hadn't seen since 1941. And I could make an honest case that 99% of the harm in that relationship had been done by him. And as I continued to work the steps, I continued to see more clearly that if any of us have that kind of a relationship in our lives and it's sick, we're never going to be well until we do whatever we can to make it better. And finally, in... Uh, 1968, in the fall, I had made a new eight step. I found 12 people in there that I had harmed sober. And I went and made amends to all those people. Everything is connected to everything else. After I made those amends to those people, I had a job in Miami, a business convention. And on the way back to Chicago, I stopped in that little town in South Georgia. And I went to see my father unannounced. And I rang the doorbell and I made an amend to him. And then I told him who I was. And we talked for perhaps 25 minutes. And in March of the following year, 1969, I got the feeling I should go back. And I went back again and we talked for another 25 minutes. And these were probably the most painful visits I ever had with anybody in my life. Because I think that what happens if we work these steps it cleans out scars and scar tissues that we can't get at otherwise. And it changed some things within me. And that, I think, is one of the big, big differences between the AA program and any kind of therapy I ever heard anything about. Because we can literally reach back into the past. And as we change the past, we can live more freely and healthily in the present. Two weeks after that second visit in March of 1969, my father died. And I went to his funeral, very grateful that I had been to see him while he was alive, 
and very much aware that had I not done that, I would have missed a tremendous and important opportunity in my life. If anybody here has anything like that in your life, all I can say is do it now because a week from now it might be too late. I've made amends in all kinds of ways, including paying back money. But five years ago, I came to the realization that there was a magazine I had done some writing for, and I had deceived the lady editor on exactly how I was doing all of this. I've done a lot of uh, interviews with all kinds of people, Judge Robert Bork, Chuck, Chuck Yeager, Debbie Reynolds, General William Westmoreland, and uh, she wanted all of these to be live interviews, and all of them were not. I wrote them out of the... Uh, some of them out of the press kits. I interviewed uh, Yakov Smirnov, the Russian comedian, some time back. And Yakov said he thought when you became an American citizen, you automatically lost your accent so you couldn't manage a 7-Eleven. <clears throat> but I called her up and I told her what I had done. I apologized. And I said, I owe you $1,600. She said, no, I don't want the money. I said, yeah, I owe it to you. I cheated you and I lied to you and I'm sorry and I want to send you the money. She wouldn't accept it, so instantly I wrote out three checks totaling $1,600 to charity because that was not my money. A while back, I thought of a number of amends that involved uh, before sobering up. I didn't know the people's names. I didn't know where to find them. So I wrote each one of them a letter, and I put it in a file. <clears throat> I threw the file away when I went to Portugal last spring because if, I figured if I got killed in a plane crash, I didn't want Judy to read that. <clears throat> but I do the 10th step daily as part of my 11th step. I exercise every day, I meditate every day, and the beginning of my meditation is steps 3, step 7, and step 10. And I think that in the sense of step 10, I can take it to include my life in ways other than harming people. Am I exercising enough to be healthy and stay in condition? I started tithing many years ago. I give 10% of my income to charity. Am I up with that? Am I doing the kinds of things that I ought to do with my life? Or am I so busy running around being important that I don't have the time to do God's will and help people as I should? I pray and meditate a substantial amount each day. And I spend a lot of time initially in praying for other people and praying for myself because I looked on God as kind of a cosmic candy machine. And I came to understand what step 11 says, praying for only knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out, and that's what I do now. Meister Eckhart, who knew a great deal about prayer, said that when I pray for something, I do not pray. When I pray for nothing, I really pray. And what I do is I take a phrase like, God is love or thy will be done, and bring my mind back to it and back to it and back to it. And I've been doing this since 1949, and my mind still wanders, and I still uh, try to put in the time, because... In my experience, the quantity influences the quality. The more time I put in, the better the quality is. And it enables me throughout the day to remain more aware of God and the importance of God's awareness in my life and the importance of trying to do God's will. Just continue to, to, to do those things I should do and refrain from those things that I should not do. So I think any alcoholic that I sponsor who does these kinds of things will have a message to carry to other alcoholics and will know how to help an alcoholic. Because we don't spend a lot of time listening to people's troubles. 
If I have problems in my life, those problems are a result of inadequate work in the 12 steps. And the answer is to get to work with the steps. As I say, when somebody comes into that group, if he's sober a week or 20 years, he gets right into the steps, as they did with Bill Wilson and Bill did with Dr. Bob. Earl Treat started AA in Chicago in 1939. Earl was started by Dr. sponsored by Dr. Bob. He spent three weeks in Akron in 39. Before he came back to Chicago in those first three weeks, Earl Treat worked the first eight steps of the program. So we're not doing anything strange or unusual or radical. All we're doing is working and reworking the 12 steps. So any alcoholic who does this will have a tremendously powerful message to carry to anybody who's willing to listen. What will it do? Well, we had a guy, that a friend of mine, Dennis O'Brien, who I met in 1970. He was sober 11 years, in terrible shape from no work with the steps. He'd gone to a psychiatrist who offered to treat him and his girlfriend and his wife simultaneously for <laughs> a group price. And uh, Dennis was crazy. He really was crazy. He was sober 11 years, went to a lot of meetings, and he was nuts. He started to work the steps, started to try to live an honest life. He made amends. He helped others. Sanest guy you ever saw in your life, eventually. Guy named Herman. Herman was uh, an alcoholic who couldn't stay sober, and after two or three years, he started to work the steps, and he began to stay sober. He did for the rest of his life. But Herman had high blood pressure, and he hadn't done anything with the steps, and he took a, uh, anybody here with high blood pressure? And he took uh, three-fifth steps in about a week or two, and he had a physical every three months. And the doctor put the cuff on one arm, and then he put the cuff on the other arm, and then back on the first arm. He said, I don't know what you did, but your blood pressure is normal. And Herman said, I took the fifth step. Now, I don't know what the doctor thought about that one. <laughs> Another man I knew bounced around AA drunk for 15 years, never could stay sober. Sobered up again in 1971. This time he started to work the 12 steps and he never drank again. I think the message is summed up in the experience of a man that I knew for many years who again bounced around AA for perhaps a dozen years. And in 1971, he came back, this time with the difference that he came to our step group and he began to work the steps. He had three boys. The youngest was eight years old and was in a, a class for retarded children because he couldn't learn. The father was a very badly behaved alcoholic. And as the father began to stay sober and work the steps and change, the boy changed. And when I had lunch with the father when the boy graduated from high school at the age of 18, he said that first year his son went from the retarded class to a regular class, doing average work, and continued to get smarter. The father said that he made the honor roll every grade period but one, he was a varsity football player. The father said, he wasn't retarded, I was retarded. The father said, if all I had done is not drink, that would have never happened. And I think that if you and I continue to work these steps, we change, and the change is reflected in the lives of everybody that we come to know. And I'm here because I learned it from you. This is what I looked for all of my life and couldn't find anywhere else. And I'm here because without your help, I couldn't remember it. Thank you very much.